We are in week two of our series called Kingdom Rhythms, and this is a uh, third, kind of the third uh, uh, installment in the larger series we're preaching from the Sermon on the Mount called The Uncommon Kingdom. And in this um, uh, kind of third installment where we are now, we're examining the righteous practices or the spiritual disciplines, we might call them, of the Christian life. And we call them kingdom rhythms. We use that word because it reminds us that there are things that we do, patterns that we have and that we develop in our daily lives as we walk with Jesus that keep us in step with God. And Jesus is going to unpack these in Matthew chapter 6. If you want to go ahead and turn there, you can. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 6 this morning. And throughout Matthew chapter 6, he primarily deals with three of these spiritual rhythms, spiritual disciplines, and that is the rhythm of giving, praying, and fasting. Those are the big three he talks about. And the reason he addresses those is because um, for the people that were around him there at the Sermon on the Mount, those would have been uh, Jewish people or newly converted Jews to Christianity, and they were raised with those being the three pillars of their faith. Uh, the three ways that the Jewish people showed their devotion to God and their piety was through giving, fast, praying, and fasting. So Jesus addresses these, and today we're going to look at this first kingdom rhythm of living a life of genuine generosity. And Jesus is going to help us understand the importance of generosity, the motive behind it, and the reward in it. That's, that's what we're going to discover from God's Word. So in Matthew chapter 6, let's start in verse 1. That's where we were last week, and we're going to read through verse 4. God's Word says this, "'Beware of practicing your righteousness before, others, before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets.' that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. I think what we're going to discover this morning, Jesus is teaching us in the Sermon on the Mount what the kingdom looks like, what life in the kingdom looks like, and how this kingdom life as a citizen of God's kingdom, transforms not only how we live, but why we live the way we live. The, the, the reason behind the, we, uh, the, the way we live our lives. And it's important that we remember this kingdom life, being a kingdom citizen, belonging to Jesus, is not about um, the to-do list that we check off. It's not the list of rules we follow, but rather it is a life in the Spirit of God that changes who we are. It changes who we are. So our pursuits, our actions, our spiritual practices, all of those things that we do, they're no longer driven by religious obligation. They're driven by the new life that we have in Christ because of the Holy Spirit who is in us. And one of these spiritual practices is spirit-led generosity. Spiritually speaking, um, how we view our money, what we do with our money, and how we give 
Our money is, according to Jesus, one of the greatest indicators of whether or not we are living with a kingdom perspective. Now that you know we're talking about money, can we all just let our shoulders down and just relax a little bit? I want you to know you're going to be all right. Everything's okay. I've already locked the doors. You're not going anywhere. So the, uh, the, how we view our money, what we do with it, how we give it, according to Jesus, is one of the greatest indicators of whether or not we are living with a kingdom mindset. How we do this, how we live generously, is an indication of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. But let's just be honest, we struggle here, right? I I hope me and my family aren't the only ones. We struggle here. Jesus knows that we struggle with this, that we stress over money, and it, it causes anxiety in our life. There was a study done a few years back, I say a few years, it was in 2015, of uh, Americans and their view of money, and the single greatest stressor in the lives of Americans is money. More than our marriages, more than our jobs, more than our kids, more than anything else, we stress about money. Uh, It says 72% of people feel anxiety about money every single day of their life. That's a huge stressor. And Jesus knows this about us. He knows this is a battle in our hearts. He knows that in our spirits, it's a war we're waging to to fight that anxiety and to live open-handed. It's why he would say later in Matthew chapter 6, here in just a a few verses, um, around verse 21, he would say things like, for where your treasure is... There you're what? There your heart is. He's trying to help us get the right mindset. He would say around verse 24, no one can serve two masters. For either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other, but you cannot serve both God and... Can't do it. Can't serve God. And what's he doing? He's shaping our thinking around this issue because here's the reality. We will either serve God with our money, or we will serve money as our God. And I wish there was a great big gray area in between, but there's not. We will either serve God with our resources, with our money, or we will bow down to our money as our God. And so what I'm praying today, as we navigate through, is that we will find some freedom with this struggle, and we will gain a kingdom perspective. Here's why. Because generous living, creating this rhythm in our life of living open-handed is actually a gift from God to us. It's a gift from God to us. Pastor J.D. Greer said this, generosity is not something God wants from you, it's something God wants for you. Man, that changes how I think of it. And he wants this for us because God knows Um, that money has a way of captivating our hearts. It has a way of pulling us away from God and from God's priorities. It has a way of oppressing us with all kinds of anxiety and heartache. But listen, church, the more generous we live, the more free we are from that oppression. Meaning, when I learn to open my hands, I learn to walk in freedom. And when my hands close, I become a slave. That's what Jesus is unpacking for us this morning. The more we learn to live generously, the more free we are from this oppression. 
We have three children. Uh, when our daughter was little, for four years of her life, she was the only kid. Her brothers weren't born yet. No cousins were born yet. She was the only kid on either side. So she had both sets of grandparents to herself. She had mom and this four years of living large. Nobody else in the picture. No. And she loved it every second of it. Uh, and then her brothers were born. In that four-year season, our daughter Kelsey was a very generous person. She would share with her friends, do all sorts of great things. And then her brothers were born. Now there's these two little guys in the house who want to touch all of her stuff and play with all of her things and go take them and hide them and do stuff. And she can't find her stuff. And now all of a sudden that spirit of generosity, it wasn't there anymore. She didn't want them around her things. And so what I would notice is when her brothers, when Jackson and Clayton would come into the room, Kelsey would begin the toy gathering process, which is she would start picking up everything that belonged to her, right? And she would make her way out of the living room. And have you ever seen a kid try to pick up every toy they own? In an, who was that kid? You're in here right now. I know you are, right? You're the kid who, who wants to, and she would pick up all of her toys. If she could get everything she owned into her hand, she would. And it's actually hilarious to watch because when a kid tries to do that, what's constantly happening? They're just dropping stuff and then they got to pick it up and they're piling it on and they keep dropping. Can I tell you something? I think when God looks at his kingdom citizens, a lot of times he sees kids trying to hold all their toys and not being willing to, to open our hands and he sees us working to keep control and to maintain what we think is ours and to, and to hold on to it. And the, the more that we do that, we don't realize we're actually losing control because we're constantly dropping the things that matter most. The harder I work to close my fist around the things I think are mine, the more enslaved I am to those things. Which is then, here's what, here's what that does in me. I don't know if it does this in you, but it does this in me. Now all of a sudden, I start to live in fear of losing any of it. I all of a sudden have a high level of anxiety around even the thought of living on one cent less than what we have. Am I singing anybody else's song or am I just talking to myself this morning? Right? All of the sudden, the thought of having a little bit less is an enormous anxiety. And I begin to lose sleep over my financial security and it becomes this point of oppression and I lose sleep over it and I feel sick over it. And what I want us to see this morning is that our healing from this, our deliverance from this is in one place, spirit-led generosity. That's where it is. So, I want us to see three things that we find here in Matthew chapter 6 in these four verses that Jesus teaches us about this rhythm of living generously in spirit-led generosity. Here's the first thing that I think we see. Generosity received leads to generosity lived. Generosity received leads to generosity lived. Jesus says in verse 2, thus when you give to the needy. Now I want to remind you what we talked about last week. Jesus doesn't say if you give, he says what? When. This is there there is an assumption 
from our Savior, from the King of our kingdom, that his followers will live generously. That verb, give, is the present active tense. And all that means for us is it indicates an ongoing action. This is a rhythm. This is something done regularly. But I want to tell you, this rhythm of living generously, this giving lifestyle, keeping this as a steady rhythm in my life, this isn't something I can do in my flesh. I can't do it. Now, my flesh will give sporadically. My flesh will be generous occasionally, every now and then, but my flesh cannot maintain a rhythm of open-handed generosity. This requires supernatural influence. This requires something other than my best efforts. It requires the gospel. It requires having received the generosity of Jesus. Spirit-led generosity flows from the generosity that's found in the gospel. And what is the gospel? What is the generosity of the gospel? I want you to see it in God's word in Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Paul is writing out for us how God was generous toward us and is generous toward us in Christ. And he says this, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. Everybody say blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the, how many did he give us? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption. Everybody say, I've been adopted to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And in him, what do we have? We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, listen to this word, which he has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. What is the generosity of the gospel? We have been blessed in Christ. We were chosen before time began. We've been adopted as sons and daughters. We've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Our trespasses have been forgiven. And we have been immersed in the lavish, overflowing giving of God's grace. That's the generosity of the gospel. And Jesus has said, in receiving that, you become generous people. Most famous verse in the whole Bible says what? God so loved the world that he, he gifted. He, he, he poured out Jesus. He gifted him to us. He gave Jesus to us so that whoever would receive that gift and believe in him wouldn't perish but would have everlasting life. The point is because God gave to us, we give. Because we have received generosity in Christ, we live generously for Christ. And church, I just want you to hear me say this. This should mark us. This should mark us in this world. We ought to stand out in this way in comparison to the rest of the world. Should there be a people on this planet more generous than the people of God? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is nope. There should not be, because the people of God have received a generosity that the rest of the world hasn't received. 
But I want you to think about this for a minute. On average, it's just an average, most Americans give less than 2% of their income to charitable giving. Less than 2%. That's just an average. That's not, I'm not talking about Christians. I'm talking about Americans in general. On average, we give less than 2% of our income to charitable giving. For Christians, we give an average of 2.5%. I want us to just sit with that for a minute. Kingdom citizens are outgiving the lost world by a whopping 0.5%. That make anybody else feel a little itchy? Um, let's bring it home to New Beginnings. Of the 2,000 to 2,500 people that worship as a part of either one of our campuses on a, a weekly basis, only about 20% of those give anything at all. And only about 5% of those actually tithe regularly. Now, I don't say that to make us feel bad. I say that to ask this question. What does that say? What does that say about us? Does that say we are living with a different kingdom in mind or we're living to amass all we can in this kingdom? What does it say? Does it say I have eternity in view every time that I put my check in the bank, every time that I either have to make a decision to tithe or not, to give or not? Am I thinking with eternity in view or am I thinking with amassing this kingdom and being sure I have everything that I need and I want and I never have to lower my standard of living? What does it say about us? And hear me, hear me I know I'm being super yelly right now, sorry, but I'm yelling at myself. I'm, I'm talking to me. I need, I need fresh vision for this just like you do. I can't imagine what God could do through us if those 2,500 people locked it down and said, we are going to do the minimum of giving our tithe to the kingdom of God. You say, well, hold on, Pastor. I don't, I don't disagree with what you're saying. I see it. I know God's Word teaches it, but here's what you've got to know. We're not rich. We, we don't have a lot. Um, we use every single dollar we have just to make ends meet. So that's why we don't give. So we're, you know, we, we don't have to worry about this part. God knows that we need every penny. One of the most difficult lessons that Carrie and I learned early in our marriage when we were looking up at broke. That's how far below we were. We were. Broke was up here somewhere. I was living way down there. One of the most difficult lessons we learned was that there is no relationship between what I make and God's expectation that I give. See how quiet it just got in here? That's what happened to us too. <laughs> there is no relationship between what I make, large or small, and the kingdom expectation that I give. Now, what's given is going to vary. That varies person to person. It looks different family to family. But the kingdom principle remains 
constant because God's people, by virtue of having received the gift of Jesus and the love of God in our hearts, will be generous people. That's the first thing. Generosity received becomes generosity lived. Here's the second thing. Generosity should be motivated by our love for God, not the praise of man. By our love for God, look at verse 2. Jesus says, Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Jesus says, When you give, sound no trumpet before you. I'm going to put that in these Texas terms. Jesus is saying, Hey folks, don't toot your own horn. All right? That's what he's saying. He's saying, Don't be a humble brag. Everybody know those? <laughs> Everybody know those humble brags? You guys know what I'm talking about right now, right? The, and uh, we just, sorry we can't make it tonight. We were saving a, people from a burning orphanage. We're just exhausted. You know what I mean? That's those humble brags. <laughs> we all know them. We all are them. Uh, we noticed last week that Jesus uses a very interesting word to describe the humble brags and to describe the religious leaders and the Pharisees. He calls them hypocrites. He calls them hypocrites. Which means, a, in this context, is defined as a stage actor. Jesus calls them pretenders. He said the people who do this so that people will see what they're doing are pretenders. And he uses this word to draw a stark contrast between the Pharisees and what he expects of his people. Now listen, he's not drawing the contrast between what they do, but he's drawing the contrast for why they do it. Remember, we're supposed to be marked by generosity. The Pharisees gave their alms. The Pharisees gave to the needy. They gave their tithe. They did all the right action. But what Jesus is highlighting here is that the motive for our giving is infinitely more important than the action of our giving. This is a heart issue. It's not just, did I check the box? And that motive has to be our love for God, not the recognition of man. Now, we've been doing this, Carrie and I've been doing this a long time. Uh, we've been married uh, coming up on 22 years, and we've been doing this all 22 of those years. And in the churches we've served, there's been um, uh, lots of those places in the church where you could see little name plaques or things like that of people that had donated a certain amount of money. Um, you, and now you've seen these as well when you go to uh, go into a building on a college campus or something like that, there's always a name on it. It's usually not named for somebody who did something awesome. It's usually named for somebody who wrote a check. You know what I mean? By the way, there's no building on the planet named after me. That would be kind of cool, but that's because I'm a sinner. And so, the, but you see those buildings, you see those all around. You'll walk down a hallway and there's this like wall of fame of donors and that sort of thing. That gets into the church too. There's been a lot of churches that we've served where at the end of almost every pew is this little plaque, this little gold plaque and etched in it. It's the name of the person who gave the money to buy the pew, right? Or there's bricks with somebody's name stamped in it as you walk in so you know who donated what. 
We had, there was a piano at a church where I served before that was covered. I didn't know it existed. I was there for five years before I found it. And it was under a sheet with potted plants on it. That's not a joke. I, I thought it was a table. And I lifted it up. I was like, that's a piano under there. Had a name on it. I tried to sell that because it had been that way for five years. And when I did, I almost got fired because it had a little plaque on there because it had been donated by somebody. And so you see, if you try to mess with those plaques, You are kicking in a hornet's nest, baby. You want to know why? Because that pew and that brick and that stained glass and that piano was never given for the blessing of the church. It was given so that no one forgot how important mama and daddy and meemaw were to the church. That's why it was given. Nobody's allowed to forget how important they were. And I have this question that just rises up into my heart, and it is, is God impressed at all with that kind of giving. Is there any eternal value to give like that? Because here's my fear. My fear is some of us are giving for the plaque and we're missing the prize. We're giving for the recognition and we're going to miss the reward. Through the years, through those same years, uh, we, we have had the opportunity to be blessed by God's people and by His church over and over and over again. Um, We have experienced as a family that God's people are the most generous people um, in the world. And we've been, people have given to us in different ways just to show us that they love us. Even recently, uh, someone just gave to our family uh, because the Lord told them to. And when they did, listen, there was no name attached I have no idea where it came from. There was no return address given. I don't have the first clue where it came from or who gave it. Here's all I know. This is all the information I have. They felt impressed by God to give. And they were obeying a a generous impulse from the Holy Spirit. And in how they obeyed that impulse, they were declaring their love for God, not for me. Because I couldn't praise them if I wanted to, because I don't know who they are. That's what Jesus is saying here. This should be motivated by our love. Living this way is motivated by a love for God, not the recognition of man, because spirit-led generosity is always about God's glory, and it's never about our glory. Jesus says in verse 3, But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. What's behind that? He's revealing to us that generosity is not enough. Our motivation is the key. And spirit-led giving will always seek the glory of God. And when our motive is our love for God and our motive is God's glory, we don't need anyone to see our giving. We don't want anyone to see our giving. It's as if Jesus is saying... If it were possible, you should keep this hidden even from yourself. Now, we know we can't be ignorant of how we give, but here's what we can do, church. We can fight against the trap of self-congratulation. I love to pat myself on the back when I've got it right. You know what I mean? We can fight that trap of indulging in self-congratulation because 
When we can do that because we've come to understand the question is not so much what my hand is doing, but what is in my heart while my hand does it. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, keep the thing so secret. He's talking about generosity. Keep the thing so secret that even you yourself are hardly aware that you are doing anything at all praiseworthy. Let God be present and you will have enough of an audience. God, give us that heart, give us that mindset, that kingdom vision. Here's the third thing we see. Jesus promises to reward authentic generosity. He promises to reward authentic generosity. Jesus says this in verse 3 and 4, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know, left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus is pointing out for us the incomparable value of generosity that is done for the glory of God. And he's reminding us that it is better to receive our reward from God who rewards much more generously and much more openly than man ever could. And church, I don't want us to miss the power and the strength of this promise. And that is that spirit-led generosity will be rewarded, listen, even when it doesn't feel like it. even when it doesn't feel like it. Because giving when we don't feel like it requires having a kingdom perspective. Jesus, in, later in Matthew chapter 6, he's talking about battling this love of money and battling, feeling like we got to have more. We just have to have more stuff, more things, worrying about whether or not every need we have is going to be met and the anxiety that comes with feeling like we have to control this. And he says this in verse 27 of Matthew 6, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? <laughs> what a great question, because I immediately go, I'm pretty sure I've taken hours off of my life with anxiety. What is he saying? He said, you don't be anxious about this stuff like the rest of the world is, like the people who don't have a hope. You can't, we can't be anxious about this like people who have not received the generosity of Christ. Because in receiving the generosity of Christ, you are liberated to do verse 33 of Matthew 6, which is to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then under the banner of the kingdom of God, all of these things will be added to us. Spirit-led generosity is an invitation. It is an opportunity to pursue the greater reward, which is God himself. That's what it is. Paul highlighted all three of these truths that we just talked through in, in a place in 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, he's He's teaching the church there in Corinth how to live generously and how to obey this call that God has on our lives to, to open our hands. And he, he lays this out for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Look with me in verse 6. He says, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give 
as he decided in his heart. Again, this is a heart issue, right? Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves what? A cheerful giver. So it sounds like our generosity has to be motivated by our love for God, right? Motive matters in verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So it sounds like generosity that I've received becomes generosity that I live. Verse 9, as it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. And he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. It sounds like he's going to reward authentic generosity. And listen to verse 11. You will be enriched in every way. Why? To be generous in every way. Which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. You have what you have because God wants to use what you have to be revealed to somebody else. Pastor, I earned what I got. That's that's one of the easiest lies to believe that will yank you off the path of obedience before you know it. One of the quickest lies we can believe is, I own what is mine. And I've earned it, and I deserve it. Can I tell you, I don't deserve anything that I have. I don't deserve this job. I don't deserve getting to do what I do. And yet, it is the grace and the generosity of God. You don't deserve your job and getting to do what you do. It is the generosity of God lavished on your life. And he has been generous toward you so that you might be generous in all things. And not to be known as generous and become famous in yourself, but it says so that thanksgiving may be given to God. That's that's the kingdom perspective. That's what it means to be salt and light. That's what it means to open our hands and have spirit-led generosity. Great. So what do we do? What do we do? Because if the numbers are accurate, 20% of the people who worship give something. Let's just talk as the 80%. Let's just have this conversation. What do I do? I don't, I don't see margin, Pastor, so I don't, I don't know how to do this. I want to give you four principles, four steps, four things that I want you to begin to do to build this rhythm in your life. And I want you to hear me say, I'm not saying it's going to be easy. I'm saying I'm giving you these because God's word is so clear that he's been generous, so we got to be. We've got to open our hands. Okay, here's the four things I want you to see. I want you to evaluate your motives and your money. And I want you to get honest about why you give or don't give and what you are doing with your resources. That's step number one. There are some families in here that need to get around the coffee table, and you need to have the conversation about your money and your motives. And you need to print off where all your money's gone the last month, and you need to start finding those places and going, what does that say about us? That this is where our money is going. And we come to the end, and we don't feel like we have anything for the kingdom. 
What is this? Right? We got to evaluate. Got to have that honest conversation. Here's my motives and my money. Here's where it's going. What is that saying about us and what we're doing with our resources? Here's the fourth thing. Begin tithing faithfully. Some of you are going to want to throw something at me when I say this, and I'm pretty quick. I'm agile. I'll try to get out of the way. Uh, I don't look nimble, but, you know. We have discovered, our family has discovered, um, by process of doing it wrong for way too long. Let me just acknowledge that. We've discovered that we thrive financially on 90% of our income better than we ever could on 100. Now, I know you're thinking, okay, what that tells me is our pastor is terrible at math. <laughs> He's terrible at math. You're right. I am terrible at it. Um, but I'm telling you what I know to be true. Does your family need deliverance from the oppression of the cycle of anxiety around your money and your resources? Do you need deliverance from that? The deliverance from that is tucked in right behind your obedience to this. You want to know why? Because in that 10% tithe, which is what God... By the way, that's the training wheels. That's, the, that's step one. That's the base ground that God lays out. This is what I expect to give the tithe. Now with that, you start to build and learn how to be actually generous above and beyond that and give the offerings and give outside of that. But the training wheels is the tithe. How do I do that? You will thrive more on 90% with 10% given in obedience than you ever would in your closed-fisted approach to trying to manage the hundred. That may require doing the first thing. You've got to evaluate your money and where it's going. You're going to have to have some hard conversation here. So I want you to evaluate. I want you to begin the tithe. I want you to make room for God to meet you in the step of faith. That's all. I want you to just make room for God to meet you in that step of faith. Here's the third thing. I want us to not ignore a generous impulse from the Holy Spirit. This is the one that gets me. I have a story that is marked with moments where I felt, is anybody with me? You felt the Lord say, hey, I think you need to give here. And you just kind of moved on. God, it'll be awkward. And, oh, I couldn't get my window down fast enough. Never ignore a generous impulse. from. If the Holy Spirit says give, give. Stop what you're doing and give. Don't neglect that generous impulse. And here's the last thing. How do I do these first three? I remember the generosity of Jesus, that he has given everything to us in order for us to give everything. Now, you can't live this way if you hadn't met the king of the kingdom. You can't do it. I told you I can give some out of my flesh every now and then, um, sporadically, Every, every great once in a while, occasionally. I, don't, I cannot have the rhythm of open-handed living apart from the gospel. And if you have not made Jesus the Lord of your life, the first step is to become a citizen of the kingdom of God by putting your faith in the king of the kingdom. Have you done that? Have you made Jesus the Lord of your life? 
If not, here in just a minute, Philip and the team are going to lead. And as soon as they lead, I want you to just step out and come down and say, I need to meet the king of the kingdom. I need to make him the Lord of my life. I need to learn what it means to live this way. And for those of us who do belong to Christ, maybe this morning your honest confession is, um, I've received the generosity of Jesus and I've just allowed it to terminate with me. It just stops right there. As a family, we've closed our hands out of anxiety, out of fear, out of worry, out of an inability to trust that God, I've just closed my hands. And I I need the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit to help me open my hands and begin to live this way. And so we're going to worship. Some of this you've got to do right in your seat. You just need to begin to ask the Lord to do this work. Some of you just need to step out, come confess. I need help. I need help with this. I need the Holy Spirit to empower me to do this. Whatever you need to do, I'm asking you, don't stay in your seat. If the, if the Holy Spirit has spoke to you, if he's pricked your heart, step out and obey. Let's pray. Father, I love you and I thank you for your word and the power there and the life there. And Lord, I pray that just over the next few moments, you would move among us, that you would speak to us and give us the courage of obedience. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, let's stand and let's worship and respond.